and welcome to the Embassy of Ireland Canada podcast series. In this podcast, Ambassador McKee talks to Mark McGowan, Professor of History at the University of Toronto, about his book, The Imperial Irish, and World War I, and what it means to be Irish in Canada. We hope you enjoy. But it's my, um, it's my great uh, pleasure to welcome Professor Mark McGowan. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I asked Mark this morning to send me his, uh, his CV, um, it's six pages long, so I'm not going to go through it. I will say he's Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Uh, he's got great publications, uh, The Fading of the Green and the book we're going to talk about tonight, The, the Imperial Irish, but uh, he's published an awful lot. Um, and he's really been the, the leading scholar of, of the, the Irish in Canada. Um, uh, particularly around the Great War, particularly in the 19th century, and we'll talk a bit later about the, uh, the famine in Canada as well, the Great Irish Famine and its impact in Canada. Um, but uh, to frame the conversation, I'll put a few questions together. We won't stick to it exactly. But um, Mark confessed that the first question kind of stumped him, because the first question I put to Mark was, you know, he's an Ottawa Valley man. Uh, he grew up, I think, very conscious of the Irish heritage. And I was wondering, how did that influence him ultimately to choose a career and an academic career that focused on the Irish? So, Mark, you were saying you weren't quite sure how to answer that question. No, because I mean, I don't think I was even conscious. Uh, most people would say you're never conscious uh, of, uh, uh, of what I was uh, growing up. And I mean, I was actually born in Wingham, Ontario, in Huron yeah. County. and. Uh, in Wingham, uh, my, both my parents were broadcasters and my mother was of German and Irish heritage and my father, we thought, was Scottish until you did a bit more digging and they were Glaswegian Irish uh, who had come after World War I. So I always considered myself a bit of a mongrel and then, um, you know, going to high school here in Ottawa, I went to St. Pius X High School and there's some alum here I know. Uh, and uh, it, it ended up that the people that I, that I hung out with, for the most part, were Irish. One of them's here tonight. Uh, but really getting a sense of Irishness uh, was in the Ottawa Valley itself, because I worked in the Ottawa Valley. My brother-in-law, Dave, here is tonight. We worked together up there. Uh, John, uh, my, my, one of my closest friends, he and I worked up there. And I remember one night, and I don't know if, 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 if Dave remembers it, we, we ventured over to Fairbanks Hotel in Quillon. And uh, Fairbanks isn't there anymore. I mean, it, it's more, Quillon's known for Gavin and uh, Gavin's Hotel and the leprechaun dancing on the sign uh, uh, or in the, in the painted window. But we went into the, 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 the tavern, just to look, of course. And, uh, and there was a woman. Uh, an older woman singing with people gathered around her and she was singing a cappella and it was old Irish style shanty songs about lumbering in the Ottawa Valley and I was absolutely riveted by that and I think that kind of stimulated my sense that I think there's a story here I think that the story of the Irish should be told because what she was doing there was to a local group telling the story in song and it was just it, that to me was a was a really important moment and actually the storytelling why i became a historian probably was my german grandfather who was three generations canadian spoke german on the farm in bruce county as his first language uh, and uh, 
he was a storyteller. Mm. And as a kid, I just listened. Uh, and uh, as I got older, I listened, and I was able to drive him around places, and he knew everything about the locales, including the two poor Germans that were buried in this Irish cemetery where my grandmother's people were from. And, uh, and that was, and I think that combined together, mm. ironically, a German storyteller, an Irish background, and, and a family that uh, really didn't know its own story, it became, uh, I think, one of those things that I was entrusted with to, mm -hmm. to, first of all, tell the stories of those who were closest to me, but also then uh, the broader community. And that took me onto so many rabbit holes, mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, including, including rabbit holes that you and I have helped to dig that's together right. over Gone the last four years. years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, that's, I think, the case about the Irish story in Canada. It is so huge and so dense. It's actually... It's kind of hard to catch it all, but you can do it through localities. And the other thing which I notice in your work, you combine very detailed research of whatever primary sources you can with ultimately a story, a human story that can kind of encapsulate it in, in some way. It's, I'm glad you said that because I, I trained at the University of Ottawa. I trained as a social historian as an undergrad, and then I went to the University of Toronto where social history still hadn't caught on. And my own thesis supervisor, John Moyer, said... Uh, uh, why do you want to bother with that? And, mm -hmm. uh, but he was very patient. He gave me a lot of noose, so to speak. And uh, um, I thought it was important that historians not be antisocial as social historians, that they be able to relate a story that touched <laughs> a much broader uh, set of circumstances. And so um, what I've always tried to do is what my uh, historical powder grandfather, uh, Donald Creighton, did was that combine character with circumstance and see how uh, they speak mm -hmm. or don't speak uh, uh, to one another. And so what's curious about even the Imperial Irish is every chapter starts with the story of someone. Mm -hmm. And then that leads into uh, a much broader set of questions. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, inherently as a historian, I'm a humanist. And if I, if I can't relay the, the, the big questions in a very humanistic way, then I think I somehow failed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, then it reads like a, and no offense to any business people, but some sort of corporate report, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, yeah. with a lot of uh, tables and facts and figures, but um, how should we say, not much good flesh on the bones, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. so. One issue I think we should we need to put out there first, and it's it very extensively covered in the fading of the green, which is about the assimilation of the Catholic Irish uh, throughout the body of your work, particularly in, in the assimilation of the Irish and in the Imperial Irish, the question of religion, the question of Catholic and Protestant, both Irish, but you know, in many ways in, in, a, in, in, a, in a very tense relationship, um, the characterization of you know, Toronto as the Belfast of North America and so on. But can you just kind of outline a little bit about what it meant to be a Catholic in the 19th century and, and a Protestant? And, and where, where had this landed by the end of the 19th century in right. Canada? Yeah, so I backed into that book um, right. because I, was at, I did my MA actually on Ukrainian uh, Latin relations in Canada in terms of Byzantine Catholics because I had a, a, a professor who wouldn't allow me to do my own people. Um, and there was eight others in the class who were very disappointed, but I learned something else. Mm and that is relationships. So when the Byzantine uh, Catholics and the Latin Catholics couldn't agree on certain things, it was important to figure out why and, uh, and how they worked that out if they did. 
So when I backed into this thesis topic, I really expected something that was more the American model. Um, Irish Catholics in ghettos, Irish Protestants behind a lace curtain, and, uh, and so it goes. Nako Minahan's funerals, Spencer Tracy, yeah. uh, um, Maureen O'Hara, those stereotypes been in Canada. And what I discovered, and I think I always say to my students, discovery is so important when you're doing research, discovery, uh, encounter and discovery, um, was that it wasn't the story in Canada that had been kind of ingrained stereotypically with us. Um, that actually what we had were Irish Catholics across the country and Irish Protestants who behave very differently from one another, mm -hmm. uh, depending on where you were, when your people landed, who they, they engaged when they got there, so that Catholic, Irish Catholics in Halifax move into a garrison town they do most of the hard manual labor to build fortifications, work on ships, and then evolve into a very vibrant community there that's very British in their thinking because they're, mm -hmm. in, a, they're mm -hmm. in the Warden of the North. Yeah. And you go to Montreal or to Ottawa and you have a different set of circumstances where Irish Catholics land in a city that has a large Francophone Catholic population and a large, powerful Anglophone Protestant elite. So what do you do? You're a double minority. You're a minority within your own church because the majority speaks French. You're a minority within your linguistic group, and most of these migrants speak English. Some speak Irish, but most speak English because you're Catholic and not Protestant. So what badge of identity do you hold on to in Montreal or in Ottawa or in parts of New Brunswick? It's the fact that you're Irish. Mm -hmm. That's the badge I hold on to. But in Toronto, entirely different. Heavy Irish Protestant population, very few French Canadians, and there you are sitting at about 15% of the population. What do you do? When I went into that initial study, I figured, okay, this is going to be Belfast all over again. Mm. And it wasn't. What I discovered by looking at different types of records exciting things like censuses and tax <laughs> assessment rules and wills and burial registers, um, what we call routinely generated records, you begin to see a different pattern emerge that Catholics aren't ghettoized like they are in the United States, despite the ongoing myth of Cabbage Town, which by the way was actually English, uh, who grew their cabbages and it smelled in that neighborhood, ergo Cabbage Town. Uh, and I think uh, Morris Careless, who was one of my mentors, uh, uh, as a, his, who sort of developed mm. that th theory. But you have them moving to all parts of Toronto and moving into areas where you would least expect to find them. The fire department. Fire department was largely Orangemen. In fact, they didn't have to build orange halls in Toronto because they often used uh, fire halls as the orange hall. Right. But as you go through these routinely generated records, and what is... O'Garrity and Grady and Foley doing there. They're Irish Catholics, but they're still in the fire department. The police department. I discovered that, depending on when you looked, about 8 to 12% were Irish Catholic, many of whom were recruited from the Royal Irish Constabulary back in the mm. day. I mean, there are these strong ties. Now, of course, a Catholic you know, couldn't be mayor. Uh, mm. That was still very sacrosanct and orange. Catholics did get elected to city council. But it's a very different shape. And that's why I called the book, you know, instead of that song, The Wearing of the Green, this was The Waning of the Green, as they began to mm -hmm. embrace things Canadian and embrace the imperial causes. And that's, 
this book emerges out of that sense of, you know, how do I make sense of stories that are told of the Irish resisting World War I, okay? Uh, written through the lens of 1916 and the rising. And the American experience of being anti-British, okay, opposing Wilson when he even suggested going to war eventually, uh, mm -hmm. they do. Mm -hmm. But the Irish Catholics in Canada behave differently. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I dedicate the book to my great uncle, whom I never met. He died a year before I was born, mm -hmm. uh, William McGowan, who was one of the first to enlist in Toronto. Uh, he had just emigrated from Glasgow, and he enlisted. Uh, and he was in the 15th Battalion, which was the battalion that was gassed at Ypres uh, in 1915. And he was one of the few survivors. Uh, and uh, I also dedicate the book to my own grandfather, who was in the Royal Flying Corps. Yet yeah, another very staunchly Catholic McGowan. But somehow, mm. you know, embracing the Empire and actually the very dangerous job of flying. Uh, he, was a and he was even crazier as I began to pull things out. Um, he wasn't a fighter pilot, so he never went after the Red Baron or uh, had those... He was a reconnaissance pilot. He had no armaments at all. He would fly over enemy lines like a crazy man and remember what he saw, go back, and then report it. Um, so all of his... And he had... Uh, he had 10 siblings, mm -hmm. and all of the nieces and nephews remember as their kind of strange Uncle George. And now I knew why. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the other is, is dedicated to Hugh McNally, Hugh Francis Xavier McNally. And he is the most interesting story of all. Um, my wife, uh, Eileen, and uh, Dave, uh, her brother, this was their great uncle. He was in the Irish Volunteers during oh. the, the 1912 to 1914 period. He was a lieutenant in Belfast, off the Falls Road, mm. okay? When war was declared in 1914, given the fact of his strong nationalist, uh, constitutional nationalist, he yeah. would have been a Redmanite, he is a, a doctor. In fact, he went to Queen's Belfast as a Catholic and graduated top of his class. Yeah. He volunteers and becomes surgeon on the HMS Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And he goes down uh, near the Orkneys oh. with Lord Kitchener in 1916. Mm -hmm. what, a I mean, what a strange story. Mm -hmm. Irish nationalist, volunteer, lieutenant, turned recruit surgeon, turned uh, almost heroic in the way in which you know, he meets his, his, his end with the head of the British war effort. Um, and yet, not that strange in the sense that when you talk about the Irish recruitment um, in the Boer War, but more particularly in the First World War, they see themselves as fighting for small nations um, against the Kaiser, uh, fighting for the British Empire, but also fighting for home rule in Ireland. So in a way, and you make that point in the book, that home rule in Ireland and fighting in the Great War were two sides of the same coin. They didn't particularly see a conflict. In fact, they saw them as as reinforcing each other in the same way that John Redmond said for the volunteers, go and fight for little Belgium and come back and we'll have a, an independent country. To what extent was that prevalent in the thinking of those who enlisted in, particularly in the early period in 1914, if you're an Irish Catholic in Canada? 
So it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the Irish community here, as I've already pointed out, is not homogeneous by any stretch of the imagination. And there are various parts of the country where recruiting is heavier uh, than in others. But it should be known that John Redmond frequently corresponded with Canadian politicians to see how a possible federation-type model would work for Ireland, given that he knew that there was a unionist minority that wouldn't have it. He knew that in Canada there was a French-Canadian minority that somehow was able, with the Anglophone majority, to work something out. So they're aware of one another. The constitutional nationalists here among the Irish uh, were clear that they wanted for Ireland what Canada already had, self-government within the British Empire, because they saw Canada as a model for Ireland. Now, you did have physical force nationalists Mm -hmm. here, much like the United States, but not as many when I was exploring this as what I thought I would find. It's fractional, I think. So there is a priest from Ottawa, and since I'm in Ottawa, uh, which is kind of my hometown, um, J.J. O'Gorman was the founder of Blessed Sacrament Parish uh, in the Glebe. J.J. O'Gorman was uh, superhuman. He did practically everything. But one of the things that he did do is he signed up as a chaplain. Uh, Ottawa Valley Roots, uh, there were actually three O'Gorman chaplains during the war, all related. Um, And he talked about double duty. He spoke about eight languages, including Irish. He had spent some time uh, on the... um, uh, on the uh, Aran Islands, right. learned his Irish there, Galway Irish, and he, he then said, we have a double duty. He said, uh, we have a double duty first to be loyal uh, to our country as Canadians, but we also have a duty uh, to Britain and to Ireland to see that Ireland has the type of constitution that Canada has. And he wrote openly about it. And there were some Irish people here that were not happy with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, most respected him. He was a scholar. He was a priest. I mean, he founded a parish. He founded a school. He founded Immaculata High School, by the way, with the Gray Sisters. I mean, this guy was everywhere. The Ottawa Boys and Girls Club? Yeah, that's J.J. Uh, O'Gorman. Uh, but he, but he, I think, as in terms of story, epitomizes this constitutional nationalist approach. Um, we don't want to achieve it by violence. We don't need a republic. If Dublin had a parliament, okay, that was much like the parliament in Ottawa, okay, in terms of it, at least in in terms of its governance structure, not in terms of its political parties, yeah. um, that Ireland would show itself as loyal and be as loyal as be as loyal. As, as Canada is loyal, or Australia is loyal, or New Zealand is loyal. Which is very well, I mean, it's possible. I mean, John Redmond visits Canada in, in March of 1914 and is fated as a hero because he's got home rule on the books. He's, it's postponed for the duration of the war, but he has it on the books, so he's a hero. Um, the other dimension to uh, the recruitment, as well as the kind of incentive to fight for small countries, it's quite marked in your book the degree to which the Catholic bishops were at the forefront of recruitment. Now, they didn't know what we know about how the war was going to end and the carnage, but certainly at the beginning of the war and even through the conscription period, Catholic bishops are, are out there stumping for um, young men to, to, to enlist. What, was, what, were the kind of, what were they driven by? They were driven by a number of things. First of all, they thought this was a just war that the Kaiser had to be stopped. And that became even more apparent to Catholics when the German army moved into Belgium and burned uh, Louvain, 
university, the medieval Catholic university and all of its books. And so that became even more of a, a passion. There was even a theology uh, that Bishop Spratt of Kingston, now notice the names here, Bishop Spratt of mm. Kingston, you know, says, it talks about, uh, you know, doing your duty uh, to both crown and to God by, by fighting uh, this evil. Or Bishop McCarthy, there's another name, in Halifax, okay? Mm. Uh, Bishop Fallon in, in London, and he's featured on, on the book. This was all part of, of them, first of all, seeing Catholics in Canada, not just Irish, mm. but, but French and Italian and Poles who also recruited. Uh, in, um, in fact, the Irish regiment in Edmonton was probably better termed the Slavic regiment because of the number of immigrants who joined there. Mm. They saw this as, first of all, them proving themselves loyal. Second, that it was a, that it was a just war. Mm. And so they became active. Bishop McNeil in Toronto was a Cape Bretoner, and everybody thinks, well, he was a Scotsman. His mother was a Maher, mm. and the family had deep Kilkenny roots. And uh, Nicholas Maher was a judge in Halifax, his, his uncle, although they were comparable in age, family size being what mm. they were. Mm. I mean, McNeil went up on the, on the platforms to advocate for young men to join. Um, mm. he, he actually tried to raise a battalion, and there were several Irish battalions raised, one in Montreal, which is the one that's, that, that's most famous, the 199th, but there was the yeah. 208th battalion in Toronto. Um, and the interesting thing is, so that was mostly Irish Protestants. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, a Catholic woman, Teresa Corman Small, okay, whose husband, Ambrose Small, was that nefarious uh, uh, theater uh, owner uh, and millionaire, she gave $5,000 to raise this, this regiment in Toronto, which was mostly Irish Protestant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you see this kind of, uh, before ecumenism became official church policy, you see a lot of rapprochement be between the Catholic hierarchy, Catholic leaders, and Protestants. When J.J. O'Gorman, again, creates something called the Catholic Army Huts in Europe, mm. he enlists the Knights of Columbus to, to, to basically provide the groundwork. And these would be uh, basic, basically uh, recreation, recreation centers, centers yeah. open to all. All are welcome. And you go through this alleged Belfast of North America in 1918, and you have Orangemen, and you have Masons, and you have Knights of Columbus, and you have Catholics and Protestants without affiliation collecting money for Catholic army huts. I mean, I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> the truth is stranger than fiction. And the Protestant generals who helped them, you know, say, um, this, is, this has been a marvelous thing for all soldiers. Yeah. Sir Arthur Curry, for example, uh, praised the Catholic troops in some cases um, for their restraint in the use of the Lord's name. But, um, yeah, interesting, soldiers not swearing that way. It's because many of them belong to the Holy Name Society yeah. and refused. Yeah. Uh, and he thought this might be a good thing even for Protestant soldiers to join, not knowing the complications that it's a well, Curry's a very yeah. interesting character because they, they family changed the name. I think it was Cochrane or something, but they changed it to Curry to cover their Irish roots, which yeah. is quite interesting. Canada's most famous soldier in the First World War actually had, had, was, was, was an Irish family. Yeah. I mean, apart from the bishops being recruitment agents, I mean, there was another theme of the book which is really strong, which is that the, the Protestant Canadians, and particularly the Orange Order, could never be quite convinced that the, Catholic were, the Catholics weren't loyal. 
And this was something that the recruits faced and the bishops themselves kind of had to thread their way through. This was almost, almost as if the war was a test of their loyalty that they were determined to, to pass. And this was pronounced particularly in the Ottawa Valley, places like Renfrew and Pembroke and, and Armprior, where there was a strong Irish Protestant you know, <coughs> contingent and Orangemen who uh, couldn't believe, first of all, that Catholics could be loyal, mm-hmm. and then secondly, uh, that uh, the Knights of Columbus didn't take a secret oath to the Pope. Uh, and so some Catholics in the Valley are always fighting this rearguard action uh, against yeah. the locals. Uh, until um, uh, Father French in Renfrew uh, decides that he's going to bring in a few Protestants to evaluate the Knights of Columbus and then make a public pronouncement that this oath is, is bogus. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it hits the papers. And then French, of course, to put his money where his mouth is, volunteers and he becomes one of the Canadian chaplains yeah. uh, in Europe. I mean, it, uh, again, sometimes in these small stories, these micro stories, you find the, uh, tentacles that reach into much larger uh, uh, stories. O'Gorman was wounded, wasn't he? O'Gorman was. And, um, and again, somewhat serendipitously, um, Catholic padres tended to go out in the battlefield because of the sacramental nature <coughs> of their ministry. So they wanted to be there to hear confessions. So they were, even though they were told not to, they were often in the front lines. And then, of course, they carried the Blessed Sacrament with mm-hmm. them um, uh, to, to administer to, to soldiers who, who, who wanted it or were dying. And, of course, the last rites, extra <coughs> for those. So Gorman is up there collecting bodies in no man's land. A shell goes off, and he's, he's uh, critically wounded in one of his arms. Yeah. So he has to be evacuated back to Ottawa. And so he's in the Grey Sisters Hospital here, not far, uh, in, in Lower Town. Uh, and he's recuperating. And while he's recuperating, he has all these political connections in Ottawa. He knows them all, liberal, conservative, mostly liberals. But uh, uh, he starts reorganizing the chaplain service uh, because he's, unsat- he's not satisfied with the way in which Canada's doing. He feels it's discriminatory against uh, Catholic chaplains. It was and one chaplain per... Uh, we'd normally, you'd get one chaplain per, per, per brigade. brigade yeah. and, uh, and in some cases, you had brigades where, that were overwhelmingly Catholic, and they would appoint a French-Canadian priest, so the Irish and the Scots and uh, the Poles and the Italians wouldn't go to confession to a French-Canadian priest. <laughs> or they would, they would send an Irish priest to the... To the to to the Royal 22nd, well, they wouldn't listen to to him. And actually, one of the things I discovered when I was doing the research was um, a sheet that was given to priests for confession, um, which was interesting. It was in in French and English, and then it was, if you were an Anglophone priest, how you would pronounce these words in French. And then you get into the sins that they were asking them to, and I won't go into that. But there's a funny point, though, as well, that the, uh, the, the, the chaplains did notice that on the eve of battle, everybody was looking for confession. And then when they came back and they survived, religious uh, zealotry eased off quite a bit, which confounded some of the chaplains, yeah. Well, as uh, General Steele said in MASH, he said, there are no atheists in In foxholes. But uh, uh, at the same time, I was going through records in Calgary um, at the cathedral parish there, and then I discovered that when soldiers were demobilized and said they were Catholic, the, the demobilization list would be sent to the largest parish in that particular city. So I was going through the list in Calgary, 
and the parish priests and the bishop of Calgary, whose name was McNally, mm-hmm. okay, um, are, and they're realizing they don't know these people because they had no track record of actually going to church mm. in the Diocese mm. of Calgary prior to the war, and now they were sort of landing on their doorstep, and the government expected the church to do something with them. They just didn't, didn't know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, So we're pretty much aligned. I mean, up until, certainly for 1914, 1915, everybody is behind the war efforts. Everybody knows what they're doing. They're fighting for the empire. They're fighting for the rights of little nations. There's no real conflict here. They're looking for home rule for, for home rule for Ireland, um, and the war is dragging on. But the the sense of a cause is there, and whatever about the the suspicions of Protestants, Catholics I haven't listed very heavily. They're in the front lines. The bishops are there, and then you have a rising in Ireland in 1916. So how do they react to this? Because the rising, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the rising in 1916, it's hugely unpopular in Dublin. Dublin is in ruins. Um, how do how do how do the Catholic Irish uh, respond to this? What some would say was a stab in the back. The newspapers, the Catholic newspapers here, are very clear that this was and this was stupid and it was uh, it was a betrayal uh, of of Redmond and uh, and the constitutional nationalists. They were dead set against it for the most part. Um, the bishops were were upset uh, about it. Things become more muddied after General Maxwell, mm-hmm. in the, the process of martial law, executes some of the leaders of, of 1916. And then people like O'Gorman say, listen, we're fighting for, for certain values. Small nations should be free, that we have models of constitutional government. This is smacks of Kaiserism, the way Maxwell has has uh, summarily executed Padre Pierce and, and Plunkett and, and others in Dublin. But O'Gorman, it's after this point that O'Gorman makes his famous uh, speech uh, with regard to uh, double duty. It's after this that the Ancient Order of Hibernians have a major convention in Boston and a New Brunswick priest by the name of McLaughlin goes as a member of the Ancient Order of Hibernians and makes a speech about how Canadians are still loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, it's hushed silence. I mean, as this Canadian Hibernian says, listen, we're loyal and we're fighting for principles and we want to make sure that Ireland is, is, is mm-hmm. part and parcel of the way in which uh, these principles will be meted out mm-hmm. uh, uh, in reality by the British government. So there, there's a little bit more of an ambiguity, but it's O'Gorman himself would say, we still, we still have a purpose, we still have a duty, we still have uh, an obligation. And recruiting continues. Here's the curious thing. The myth was is that the 199th Montreal uh, Irish uh, Canadian Rangers, um, their recruiting dropped off after 1916. It didn't. I went into the records. I looked at the attestation papers that, that you, a young man would have to sign uh, when he was recruited. Um, there was steady recruitment after 1960, after mm-hmm. uh, the events in Dublin in 1916. And curiously, the, the myth goes further to say that because they were Irish, they were disbanded when they got there. Well, actually, the truth of the matter is, is that Canadian units were so depleted, okay, that uh, uh, units with high numbers, like the 199th, and even the Irish Protestant 208th, are broken up 
and they're put with pre-existing units on the continent. It had nothing to do that they were Irish Catholics because the Irish Protestants were treated the same way as were the Bantams, which was if you were a short guy, you could finally be recruited into the Bantams, all right? Uh, the sportsmen, which were sports clubs, they were, they were disbanded as well. But not before the 199th got to parade itself through Cork and other places in Ireland to show how loyal Canadians still were uh, to the cause. But, I mean, this... this I shouldn't use the word uh, pisses a lot of people off, but it certainly challenges assumptions about, uh, in its very title, uh, about Irish behavior in Canada, at least Irish Catholic behavior uh, in Canada with regard to Ireland and with regard to the empire. Uh, and how, how conscious were you that the title Imperial Irish could be could be provocative, particularly in Ireland, because we don't normally regard ourselves as imperial and we've kind of... We look back on our history as a history of rebellion, but in fact, you're challenging that kind of narrative. I just let the evidence speak. Mm. And then, of course, I mean, catchy titles, and uh, that, there, was <laughs> good, there was good alliteration yeah. there. And, uh, but, uh, but it does speak, though, to a, a reality which I find fascinating in Canada, and particularly the story of the Irish in Canada, that it really does illustrate the degree to which the Irish, having been colonized, join the British Empire, become part of it, and not just members, become kind of believers too, that the empire represents something good, um, that it represents inevitable progress, and you kind of join the train and get with it. And of course, it's also presenting opportunities, you know. And in a way that that then, the, the Canadian Irish fulfill that destiny in a way, and join and enlist put their lives on the line in a way to, to confirm this role of the Irish Empire. Yeah. And it's just not World War One. I. I mean, there's a heavy recruiting during the Boer War, which mm. was a, an overtly imperialist venture by Britain. I mean, Te Deums were sung for Queen Victoria and St. Michael's Cathedral in, in Toronto. Mm. Cornelius O'Brien, the, the surname again, former Archbishop of Halifax, is a member of the Imperial Federation League, um, and, it, and it goes on and on. It seems to me a moment then, immediately after 1916, the Canadians are basically saying fast-track home rule. You know, uh, ultimately they need, they give them home rule, bed them into the empire, give them what they deserve, give them what we've had for so long. Um, um, John Redmond then dies in 1918, um, as I said, of a broken heart. His Irish parliamentary party is finished, and can take over. There's a kind of a, there is a parting of, of the ways then between an Ireland determined to be a republic in some shape or form, and they leave behind that model. That's, you know, as I often say, Canada was a future we never had. This is where that future dies, isn't it, in this period? Pretty much so, because yeah. once uh, Sinn Féin wins uh, uh, the election uh, and uh, refuses to take their seats, I mean, Canadians are, are rather confused. and. Uh, they're not supportive of, of the black and tans. Mm. Um, that is, uh, well, they don't use the word terrorism in those days, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a lot of reporting on abuses by the black and tans. But it's curious that once um, the treaty uh, comes into play, mm. 1922, the Canadian Catholic papers tend to support Michael Collins and demonize De Valera. And you see this, um, so, in a sense, they see Collins as buying into this, this almost dominion <coughs> status, at least for mm. the 26 counties, with the hope 
that the other six counties will join uh, mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, and paper after paper, still critical of the British, but at this time now critical of de Valera for trying to destroy something that really could work. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and greatly lamenting Collins's assassination during mm -hmm. during the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, and you could see when you know Ireland leaves the Commonwealth again, we're we're leaving Canada behind in a way. There's a separation there. What do you think is the legacy of um, of the Irish, the Catholic Irish Canadian? Because most of them who enlist are actually second or third generation. Um, what's the legacy? I think the legacy is less a, a Canada-Ireland relationship and it's more a relationship with other Canadians. Mm -hmm. And so the war gave them an opportunity, at least Irish Catholics, to build some bridges that really had been rather fragile before with, with non-Catholic Anglophone Canadians. I think the real damage and the fallout of the war occurs within the Catholic Church itself. Mm -hmm. So as... Um, you have, you know, kind of the imperial centripetal forces drawing Irish Catholics closer to the Union Jack. You have now French Canadians who were very conflicted about conscription and other aspects of the war, uh, you know, looking at the Irish as, you know, le Mozi Irlandais, the Orangists in disguise. Uh, uh, who they felt betrayed them. And that compounded with the French language school situation in Ontario, which, which pitted mm. this bishop, Michael Francis Fallon, you know, against the French-Canadian interests for bilingual schools. Fallon is heavily associated with the war, and so guilt by association. Um, there's a lot of fence-mending that needs to be done, and I think for individual men, mm. Who, who returned, they returned to the lives that they had lived, whether mm. it be, you know, as stevedores or farmers or woodsmen or bank clerks and the like, but with that acknowledgement that they had served when they were called upon. But within the church itself, I mean, some of those, uh, how should we say, some of the ill will continue. And O'Gorman was part of that. He and Henri Bourassa argued openly in the press uh, so much so that uh, uh, Bishop Gautier of, of Ottawa had to uh, tell uh, O'Gorman that he could no longer publish without mm. you know, approval. Um, and Gautier, although he had a French-Canadian name, actually had a Scottish mother. Mm. And so even the French-Canadians weren't happy with him here because he seemed to be more Écossais than Francais. Mm. You know, it was, uh, um, so I would say that, that the, the tragic leg legacy is a divided church. Hmm. that an Entente movement, particularly Archbishop McNeil in Toronto and Bruchesi in Montreal uh, uh, and others in Quebec are trying to build to bring the church back together. It had been hoped that the Knights of Columbus and the Chevalier de Colombe mm -hmm. in Quebec would be able to do that through the army huts and there was some rapprochement that way. But I think you know, the big fallout is less, is less an imperial fallout, it's within the church. I mean, it's interesting as well that the, the, the Catholic kind of Irish Canadian bishops who were saying it should be taught, everything taught through English, were, they were doing that with the sanction of the Vatican. The Vatican saw the English language as the future of Canada and they didn't want essentially to cut the French in. So in a way they were doing that under Vatican sanction. Um, so part of the fallout would certainly trace to that. I mean, I think the other, the other implication, of course, is that the, the Irish Canadians who come back from the war 
They come back to a country that A is in shock about the level of casualties. I mean, what were we talking seventy thousand? There were about sixty thousand killed. Killed, uh, which is huge. And every village, I think, you make the point had somebody that would have. But they come back where they're heroes. The Irish who followed Redmond's instruction, any Irish who were involved in the First World War, come back to an Ireland in which they're not heroes. That's they're, right. They're they're traitors, and in a way, I think that measures the divide between independent Ireland. Um, and, and the struggle for Irish independence in Canada. Uh, and it's a rather tragic outcome in many ways. It is. And, he, and it's funny. It's interesting because as I was doing part of the research, it mm -hmm. was going from town to town, uh, particularly in the key areas. The Ottawa Valley I put under a microscope, but I visited mm -hmm. uh, every war memorial from here right round Pembroke and then back down the other side as, as, as far as Queel. How many are there? Oh, I don't know. I, the, there were too many, and uh, I had hundreds of, of names I transcribed and then looked up in their personnel files if they could be found. But the war memorial becomes the great leveler. <coughs> so you look at the war memorial in Pembroke, for mm. example. There are Irish Catholics on there, there are Irish Protestants, there are Scottish Protestants, there are indigenous uh, men from, from Golden Lake. There are Poles on there. Uh, there are Germans who were, in, of course, in the Ottawa Valley as well. There are French Canadians. The memorial becomes the great leveler of, uh, they were all in this together. There's no reason to distinguish between, and the only distinguishing features on many of these memorials is a small cross beside the ones who, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as the memorial said, paid uh, the supreme sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can go right around to Quillon and you find the same thing. Uh, and French-Canadian names, uh, Irish names, uh, indigenous names, mm -hmm. yeah. So. I mean, one of, the great, uh, uh, one of the great examples of kind of imperial uh, discrimination was that if you looked at the statistics for our soldiers who were executed for cowardice in the field, um, more or less summarily shot, uh, if you were Irish as opposed to Canadian, New Zealand or Australian, you were four times more likely to be executed for cowardice which was an example of how the British regarded the Irish as needing a firm hand. And we kind of discovered this at the Shot at Dawn campaign where we exonerated those Irish from that disgrace. But it shows you how in those days there was, you know, an anti-Irishness, which in a way was reflected in Protestant views of, of Catholics being treacherous and, and disloyal. Um, so the legacy of the war in both countries, I mean, what, what I think is true, and we talked about this, Ireland, after you know, after hundred years of independence, we're now re retrieving the Irish who were involved in the, the 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 war, and kind of restoring them. You know that we kind of excise them from our own memory, and I think that's a really exciting prospect that we're beginning to embrace. Um, what you mentioned at the end of the book is the complexity of being Irish, and particularly being Canada, mm -hmm. which are they're negotiating an awful lot of double minority sta uh, standards, expectations about what loyalty is, and. And I think O'Gorman spoke very eloquently about this, about what, or was it Fallon, I can't remember, but it was one or other spoke very eloquently about where did their loyalty to Ireland lie compared to their citizenship of Canada. Mm -hmm. Both of them talked about that. Mm. Um, but again, I mean, I'm writing a book now, when I get a chance. Um, it's called uh, Canada's Irish uh, Community of Communities. And one of the things that you know, is, is quite clear in doing this research for how long have I been in the academy, 40 years, mm -hmm. I'm old, um, <laughs> uh, is, is discovering that trying to define what an Irish Canadian is, mm. you know, um, is, is complicated. Mm. 
Uh, an Irish uh, Catholic in Halifax, for example, um, is very different in terms of the way in which they respond to their local society, to their, their socioeconomic status, than, let's say, Montreal. I think Montreal has one of the most vibrant Irish communities Absolutely. because they came out of this double minority. Ottawa does as well because of the same situation. But, I mean, even in this audience tonight, you know, I mean, I know there's a descendant of Irish Protestant migrants from the Ottawa Valley. And they have their story, the yeah. Kavanaugh's of Huntley, you know. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, uh, uh, a son of, of immigrants uh, more recently. And that, and that adds to the complexity of the story. You know, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Toronto is revived by mm -hmm. Irish expats who come in the 70s and the 80s and want to renew themselves in their culture. Well, first through a parade, but then through, you know, all kinds mm. of different um, mm. activities. Um, on the prairies where Irish communities were very small, uh, say for, let's say, a city like Winnipeg, but in Saskatoon, you know, you have in the, in the 80s, the Society for the Preservation of Irish Culture, which is mostly Irish Protestant. And then mm. you have occultists as well. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, uh, and still, the story of the Irish in BC is still to be told, it's because hardly they're be hardly touched. I mm -hmm. had a graduate student do a, just a, a census survey. I think it really bothered him that he had to work in the census. But mm -hmm. the thing was is that to discover that there's this huge Irish Protestant community in Vancouver, yeah, yeah. Uh, that have come after the war, they're demobilized. Uh, and they're engaged in the resource industries and real estate and uh, jobs uh, there. and 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 uh, at the docks. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to say, oh, yeah, well, this is an Irish Canadian because New Brunswickers will say, well, that doesn't resemble our experience here. Yeah. Um, or you have immigrants who come and make a huge spy. And I think of Patrick Reed, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. which is a story yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, yeah. 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 I mean, Do you Pat want to tell the story? Yeah, I wanted to. Patrick Reed is is. From no, we're the, skipping war, wars. We're going into yeah, the Second World War now. Patty Reed's from Northern Ireland, yeah. and and the in the Northern Iron Horse, and it becomes an armored unit in in World War Two, and he's stationed in Italy. He's a Northern Irish Protestant, um, but he meets the Canadians who are also in Northern Italy, and he has absolutely phenomenal regard. For, for the Canadians that he's fighting cheek by jowl with uh, on the Rimini line. Uh, and uh, when the war is over, he serves mm -hmm. in various uh, parts of the British constabulary in, in Burma, now Myanmar, and then it, with NATO. But it never got out of his head that he wanted to be in Canada. And he finally got up uh, uh, an educational posting in Kingston to take a course, and that was his excuse to go back, tell his parents he was staying in Canada. Let's roll the tape. Demobilized from World War II, he gets into advertising. He ends up in Vancouver, okay, uh, working in, in advertising. He's so good at it that uh, he's called back to Ottawa and serves in a little-known unit that's to advertise Canada to the rest of the world. Now, here's, again, an Irishman mm -hmm. who's advertising Canada, and they do graphic design. Eventually, this unit is, is promoting Canadian pavilions. Uh, Patty eventually and it will be responsible Expo. for Expo 86. I mean, he'll, he'll have the Canadian pavilion there. But this, in 1964-65, is, I think, Patty's finest moment. Um, the Pearson government is in the midst of the flag debate. 
and it's raging. <coughs> the, uh, the Orange Order, the Daughters of the Empire are raging against the idea that somehow the jack will be eliminated from the flag, okay? It's just, even my own grandparents who were the Glaswegian Irish, I mean, grandma saying, oh, I've always liked a nice silk jack, you know? It was just a, and my grandfather continued to put it on the door of the house, much to my father's chagrin. Anyway, Patty Reed's team is charged with taking a look at the design. Many of you will remember Pearson's pennant, you know, the two blue, uh, uh, oceans on the one side and then the three very Ontario-esque maple leaves in the middle. Patty Reed's design team gets to it and they create, he, Patty Reed says, I want a flag that's color fast, okay, because they had problems with red dyes in those days, you know, fade to pink, he didn't want that. He wanted a flag that looked the same from both sides and he wanted a, a flag that students in school could draw easily. And the design they came up with was a design that allegedly, and this is apocryphal, they raised up the flagpole at Sussex Drive so that Pearson could see it when he got up in the morning, uh, the first morning. That's the flag that we have. So behind the, uh, the tricolor here on my pin and on Eamon's pin, is a maple leaf flag that has more Irish in it than what most Canadians realize. That's the difference that some Irish have made yep. in the country and why it's so difficult to sort of pigeonhole them in some sort of patty image because um, they're not. Mm. And we haven't even talked about the contributions of Irish women to the country, but oh, yeah. hopefully 50 Irish Lives will help solve that. Yeah, know? we're doing a 50 Irish Lives book and, and uh, we've got a lot of different contributors, but it is a fascinating way of telling that story and you do it so well. You can only understand what it is to be Irish-American if you tell these stories. And when you read Mark's books, you're not just reading about the Imperial Irish. There's all kinds of things that you learn as you read them, which is why I, I highly recommend them. Before I want, I would do want to open up to questions, but two, you said earlier about discoveries, and uh, just very briefly, if you could talk about two discoveries lately, I asked you a very simple question. How many Canadians died helping the Irish refugees, famine refugees in 1847? And then the second new kind of discovery we've been working on comes under the title Kindred Spirits, which is a story not many know about, which is uh, Indigenous Canadian support for the Irish famine, famine relief. So could you very briefly sketch in those two discoveries? Yeah, so one of the things that's often untold about the famine is, is the first responders who, uh, uh, who gave their lives on the front lines, not knowing how to cure typhus, not knowing how in many ways it was, it was spread in the 1840s and, and having no particular cure for it. Uh, they tried everything. And so Eamon asked me, Do you, could you put together a list? And so going into the records, right now the list is at about 60. Uh, uh, these would be priests, nuns, physicians, nurses, uh, orderlies, uh, assistants in the sheds. Uh, that gave their lives, uh, knowing full well that they could become infected and die. Um, uh, eight Grey Sisters in Montreal, three uh, Sisters of Providence who were take, their job was to take care of Irish orphans at the Saint-Jérôme-Emilien Orphanage uh, in Montreal. Um, the Bishop of Toronto, Michael Power, who was just shy of his 43rd birthday. Mm -hmm. He was the last one standing to go to the fever sheds in Toronto uh, 
uh, and to administer to, to the Irish who were suffering. He contracted typhus and died uh, on October 1st, 1847. I, I, I had the honor of being able to write his biography many years ago. Um, 60 is very because I think most of us would have guessed around a dozen, or, you know, bits and pieces, but I think 60 responders is, is really quite, quite a significant number. Catholic and Protestant, mm. Protestant ministers here in Ottawa, jury, a Presbyterian minister, uh, all put themselves uh, on the front lines and, uh, and uh, paid the price. Yeah. Yeah. And kindred spirits then, very briefly. So this was again, everything I do seems to be accidental. Um, <laughs> anything I really want to do um, uh, is, uh, is disrupted by an accident. Uh, this was a colleague of mine in Dublin, Jason King, who's actually from Montreal. He and I have been working on projects for about a decade. And uh, I had done a little piece on the Haudenosaunee people of, of uh, Kahnawake outside of Montreal and discovered that uh, they had actually given $150, which was an astronomical sum, uh, for famine relief at Point Saint-Charles in Montreal, where the uh, fever sheds were, and I thought there's got to be more than this. We knew about the Choctaw and the Cherokee. In fact, uh, in the United States, they had given $170, uh, and a memorial today is outside of, of uh, Cork City uh, called Kindred Spirits, which is a beautiful bowl, but it's made out of uh, eagle feathers. Um, and it's now massive. it's it's huge. Uh, yeah, my hands really don't uh, do it justice. <laughs> But now that donation has been um, uh, contested because both the Choctaw and the Cherokee were slaveholders. They came out of the American South, they imitated the American South in the 1860s. They actually had uh, uh, regiments that fought for the Confederacy. So there's a mm -hmm. controversy. But I thought, what about British North America? We've got the Haudenosaunee in Montreal. We found some records in RG10, which is, uh, the, used to be called Indian and Northern Affairs. Um, and we found actual letters from the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe peoples of what is now Ontario in um, being presented on St. Patrick's Day by the, the chief, the, the director of the Indian Department with a plea uh, to, uh, to assist the starving Irish and Scots. It was because they were also talking about the Scots and the islands and the highlands. Um, within the month, Almost every band, regardless of Anishinaabe or Haudenosaunee, gave money and said, wrote these letters uh, that essentially said, we have met in council, and that's really important, and we have decided that you should take such and such from our annuity, our government annuity, to give to our suffering white brethren. And they gave actually, I mean, and I don't want to get into comparison, they actually gave more than the Cherokee and the Choctaw. It's in pounds, and so you have to figure that uh, uh, one pound, four shillings, four pence in, in, mm. uh, in Canadian pounds is worth a pound sterling, but uh, they, gave, they gave a considerable amount of money. The, the Haudenosaunee of uh, Grand River, or Six Nations, gave 25 pounds. It's astronaut. It, it, that would be they would be able to buy several cattle with that for, for their reserve area. Uh, the Mississauga of Scugog gave five pounds. They're a very small group. The Saugeen of Nawash, uh, the Saugeen of Chippewa Hill, uh, the Mississaugas of the New Credit, the Mohawks of Teandanaga, um, they all gave. The most interesting letter came from the uh, Mississauga of Chemong, Curve Lake, near Peterborough. 
where they actually added, we have, we've had such good relations with, with our brethren close by that we must give even though we are poor. Um, and here's the kicker. Mm. Most of the Anishinaabe documents were signed with Dodamog, uh, the crane, the, the elk, uh, the deer. Um, the English thought that this was just a signature. This is what went on treaties. They thought the chief was signing his name by the pictogram, the dotum. They weren't. This was a symbol that um, spoke of peoplehood. This was a symbol that spoke of the very essence of a people honoring their treaty obligations to the crown, because each letter mentions the crown. Each one of these letters they meet in council because it's not the decision of one man, it's, a, it's the decision of an entire people to honor their treaty obligations to the crown. Now it's interesting how the crown honored their treaty obligations mm -hmm. historically. But here's a people that never met the Irish other than the ones close by them. And there were, there were plenty in Ontario at that time. But what we have here is, is a generosity that is an expression of a people who honored their, what they considered their treaty responsibilities between equals. Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for you as you are responsible for me. So that's, that's the new study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. yeah brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, in a way, it, it, it's a... Beautifully told, by the way, but it's also in a way reflects the motivation for the Irish to enlist, that they saw this was their duty to the wider family, which they understood to be the crown of the empire and being Canadian. Mm. Mark, always great to spend some time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Any questions for the audience? Yeah, Tim. Yes, McGowan, thank you very much. That was brilliant. I, I learned so much. I always do for you. Uh, I have a question about your primary sources uh, for Imperial Irish and, and your approach to them, particularly your um, uh, approach to uh, data collection and analysis uh, quantitative. Uh, you, you mentioned um, routinely generated records like census enumerations and, and property tax assessments, voter rolls, and also lists of combatants on cenotaphs and war memorials. How do you identify Irishness in primary sources like this, and and do you do you struggle? What are the challenges in ascribing Irishness to your historical subjects? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's just Mark, by the way. Oh. Do Dr. McGowan was my veterinarian uncle in Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> just to repeat the question, yeah. it is about primary sources identifying the Irish and and quantifying it, which you refer reference often in your work. Yeah. So, what you do? Those sources are not enough. Okay, so let's just take the chapter I wrote on recruitment. So um, I, 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 tried a, I tried three different levels of, of, of discovery. First, looking at regiments themselves, uh, and then doing an analysis of various battalions, and that gives me X number. Then I go to parish records. So going into churches and actually uh, taking names because they would have been identified by the parish as having participated in the war. So it's another level of trying to access this. And then the actual cenotaphs themselves. 
And then when you go through this, and it, it, it takes a long time, and you extract the names that can be located in their personnel files. So I have a data set of about 2,000 personnel, actually after all of those thousands of names have been sort of um, uh, pulled out of those records. And then you fill in with the more qualitative records. Okay, so um, diaries, and there are some diaries. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Jim O'Brien's diary. The family was very generous with me in letting me have the actual um, manuscript version of the diary that he took as an artillery officer. He was uh, from Peterborough uh, and uh, his family were very close to St. Mike's and so they thought when I was doing this project. So you have some diaries, you have newspapers. Newspapers are enormously valuable and it's not just the Catholic newspapers. It's getting a sense of where these guys and the nurses, I actually have 90 nurses in this study as well, um, is, is where were they sort of located within their home communities? Here's a, so I find this nurse. We haven't talked about enough about women. Her name was Mona Whelan. Um, her attestation paper is, is fairly clear. She comes from near Douglas uh, in, at Maston Township. Um, ends up you start pulling the strands. Her father, okay, Stephen Whelan, is actually a famine child who comes to Canada in 1847, settles in at Township, and has 13 children with Joanna O'Gorman, okay? Um, the Irish community is, is small but mighty. And then you begin to piece together these local histories about the O'Gormans, and you get a real sense about Mona and what she does, and then you follow her through. So, I mean, this book took, I actually started the Toronto portion of it in the 1980s um, and uh, and I'm kind of a lone wolf when it comes to this kind of thing I, I did have help along the way lots of help archivists and the like I was saying to my brother-in-law tonight who's, a, who's an epidemiologist um, it, whether he remembered sitting and this was in the late 1990s at their dinette table here in Ottawa I had a stack of cards with all of the medical uh, information on these soldiers and Dave and his dad who was a cardiologist God rest his soul um, going through the cards and uh, saying okay I'm going to read you the description give me a sense of, of from a physician's point of view and I still remember Pat my father-in-law saying oh, that's awful that's just, uh, just just I haven't met him I can't do a proper history but uh, um, uh, he's he's rather feeble and and uh, given the the information that was on the card. So it's more than the routinely generated records. You can't tell those stories alone because mm -hmm. those those records are often mute. But it's when you sort of do the data linkage with the qualitative stuff that you really get um, a more robust picture. And and then you get story. And Somebody, that's, you know. that's why all historians have glasses. <laughs> peering at, peering at uh, old dusty records and piecing it together. Another question. Uh, Mark, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, to what extent do you think that the casualty rate among the Irish volunteers to fight for the empire um, created the, the, the death of constitutional nationalism, or do you think circumstances would have taken us there anyway? Is this what sort of, in terms of, of Irish casualties in their units? Well, what I mean is, so, so, so many of those who would, have been, who would have sought a solution within the empire died in the fields of France or sea. And, and, and so did that change the, 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 right. uh, the, the nature of the popular movement 
just through demographics, or do you think circumstances would have taken us towards uh, the Republican solution anyway? Does this mean, in, in terms of casualties in the war having a negative public impact? I mean, I mean those men not coming back. Not coming back. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, you know, that, that's entirely possible. Uh, and uh, that you, you lost, I mean, um, Redmond's uh, volunteers, I mean, about two-thirds of them enlist, about one-third stay back, and some of those who stay back actually become, you know, part and parcel of Padraig Pierce's mm -hmm. uh, force uh, in, in, in 1916. Yeah, hypothetically, um, had, had those lads returned, they may have had a different picture, but then again, they may have also been traumatized by what they saw on the Western Front or at Gallipoli. I mean, there's the, the that song, uh, The Foggy Dew, you know, that, uh, you know, they died at, at uh, mm -hmm. Bear and, yeah. and uh, uh, in Flanders, and yet, uh, you know, had they, uh, had they risen with Cajo uh, Brua, they would have, uh, you know, yeah. made a better, better part of it. But the thing is, is that um, it's hypothetical. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also true to say that the, the, the IRB council that organizes the rising in Early, essentially, the spring of 1916, Easter 1916, they wanted to shed blood like everybody else. They wanted to say, "We deserve. We are prepared to shed our blood for Irish nationhood." So the blood sacrifice thing was huge, and in a way, it was part of. They were almost competing with those who were prepared to sacrifice themselves. What happens in the Somme later in 1916 then becomes starts to change perceptions of the war. But certainly, the men who go out and and, uh, and and fight in 1916 are motivated by the same kind of kind of search for martial glory but on behalf of, of, of Ireland so it, it's kind of interesting but I would say it's an intellectual coup d'etat because they they are running against the grain of the vast majority of constitutional nationalists who after the failed Fenian invasion in 1872 most Irish nationalists just wanted a Dominion Parliament for Ireland within the Empire I mean as even Daniel Collins said two parliaments one crown you know, That's so right. they really no. do the the theater of nineteen sixteen completely shifts the paradigm. It's it's quite astonishing, you know. And in fact, Irish history has been written differently because of that. Because of nineteen sixteen, yeah. we've cut out all of the bits that we didn't kind of weren't comfortable with that didn't fit with nineteen sixteen. But I remember I was at where it was at. Uh, I was in Liverpool uh, about twenty years ago, mm. and uh, and uh, they they were asking, you know, can we recover these names of the Irish who served? Uh, and then in 2013, I was in uh, Glasnevin Cemetery, and it was the first time that I had actually seen poppies yeah. in the South. And they were covering some of the memorials at Glasnevin. I, had th I was there in November, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I actually took pictures because I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah, yeah. You know, truth yeah. is stranger than fiction. Um, that but of course the poppy was originally an anti-war symbol. It yeah. was a symbol of rejection of the establishment that had killed so many, but it's been appropriated now, yeah. oddly as a pro-war or pro-memory of the memorialization of war. Well, remember, I had, to, I had to take mine off in Dublin. I had just come from Remembrance Day here, but when I got to Belfast, they put it back on, there so it was, it was okay. There's still differences. Yeah. Lady France, as I say, as a Republican. Uh, anybody else with a question or a comment? If I could just say something, yeah. yeah, I've already said a lot, but I don't think many of you know how important Eamon's tenure here as, uh, as ambassador has been to bringing to the surface the many stories and the connectedness between Ireland and Canada. I mean, it helps 
uh, someone like me that the ambassador is a historian and is deeply interested. But I think when I mention the word discovery, I think you're, you're landing here in the middle of the pandemic and yet uh, probably gave you time to, to, mm. to pull some threads. And uh, uh, he keeps reading and he keeps in, inviting many of us to, uh, uh, to help him on, on various projects. But um, I think as Canadians of Irish descent, we're deeply indebted to the work that you've done here in a very short time. Thank you. Thank you. kind of funny because when I, I said I've been three years here and two years were pandemic and God it was awful and then after a busy year I was like oh two years they were not <laughs> actually I know we annoyed me I had plenty of time to myself so you know but anyway listen um, thank you for coming um, which is great to have a, such a turnout for our, our book club and, uh, and on this particular subject um, and Mark thanks again for sharing your, your insights and wisdom and I have to say if I've learned anything about uh, Canada and the Irish here. Uh, Mark has been absolutely a tremendous uh, guide and mentor. And without his research and the books that are there, I don't know where where we could have started. But uh, as an illustration of that, when I started the um, Fifty Irish Lives idea, which was triggered by the Royal Irish Academy's Irish Lives in America, and it was December two years ago, uh, I sent an email to Mark saying, "Oh, this is a great idea. We should do something like this for Canada." And as soon as I pressed send, I said, "Oh God, I bet you there's one out there, and I just don't know about. It. I'm going to be mortified." And no, Mark immediately came back and said, "This is a great idea. Let's get on with it." And I think within a week, we had you and a bunch of historians saying, "Yeah, let's sign on and, and let's get it done." So we have over, well over thirty profiles now, and we'll find it for sure. And I think it will be. It's a great way of telling the story because it does what you talk about. You read the. These are 1,000-word profiles of, of Irish born in, uh, in Canada, and they just tell that story over 300 years. It is, it is an incredibly rich story that deserves to be told, and you are one of the foremost telling that story. So thanks again, Mark. Thank you.